and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. We have a very distinguished guest on our Path 11 podcast today, and it is an honor to introduce him to you. Today, I get the opportunity to speak to Stephen A. Schwartz. He is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and a research associate of the Cognitive Sciences Laboratory of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. He is the columnist for the journal Explore and editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. His other academic and research appointments include Senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing of the Samueli Institute, Founder and Research Director of the Mobis Laboratory, Director of Research of the Rhine Research Center, and Senior Fellow of the Philosophical Research Society. Government appointments include Special Assistance for Research and Analysis to the Chief of Naval Operations, consultant to the oceanographer of the Navy. He has also been editorial staff member of National Geographic, associate editor of Sea Power, and staff reporter and feature writer for the Daily Press and the Times-Herald. For 40 years, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. Schwartz is part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. Using remote viewing, he discovered Cleopatra's Palace, Mark Antony's Timonium, ruins of the Lighthouse of Pharaohs, and sunken ships along the California coast and in the Bahamas. He also uses remote viewing to examine the future. Since 1978, he has been getting people to remote view the year of 2050, and out of that has come a complex trend analysis. His submarine experiment, Deep Quest, using remote viewing, helped determine that non-locale consciousness is not an electromagnetic phenomenon. Other areas of experimental study include research into creativity, meditation, and therapeutic intent healing. He is the author of more than 130 technical reports and papers. In addition to his experimental studies, he has written numerous magazine articles for Smithsonian, Omni, American History, American Heritage, The Washington Post, The New York Times, as well as other magazines and newspapers. He has produced and written a number of television documentaries and has written four books, The Secret Faults of Time, The Alexandria Project, Mind Rover, Opening to the Infinite, and his latest, The Eight Laws of Change. Okay, everyone. So without further ado, I would like to welcome our guest, Stefan Schwartz. Hi, Stefan. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm I'm pretty excited because I've had the opportunity, um, you know, for a little while to actually speak to some people that you have worked with and have had interactions with in the remote viewing world. And I know that our listeners love that subject. And but I was not familiar with uh, some of the work on the Alexandria project. So I'm hoping we get a chance to talk about uh, that in the show today. Um, I know that you have been around for a while and um, probably trying to catch our listeners listeners up on your full story of how you came to be where you are now could take the full hour, but um, was hoping you could just give our listeners, if they have never heard of you or your work, just a, a small introduction of um, you know what, what you've been doing in the world. 
Wow. Um, well, in terms of remote viewing, that's what you want to focus on. I, um, I started doing remote viewing experiments. I called it distant viewing in those days. The, the, the term remote viewing, which is, by the way, a dreadful term, was coined by uh, Ingo Swan back in the early 70s. Uh, the problem with it as a term is that it has nothing to do with remote and has nothing to do with viewing. But that's where we understood things back in the early 70s. Anyway, I started in 1968 doing experiments um, in which I got people to, uh, I built a grid in my back garden and I, uh, that had originally um, 12 squares and then I brought it up to 144 squares and I would bury objects in mason jars or 35 millimeter film canisters. And I would uh, send out a mimeograph, that's how long ago it was, a mimeograph description of the shape of the grid. And the first question I would ask them was, can you locate which square in the grid the, the object that is the target is buried? And then uh, once you've done that, would you please describe it for me in detail and make a little drawing? And I knew I spent five years studying all of the parapsychological literature, as well as most of the metaphysical literature, and, uh, and but most importantly of all the Edgar Cayce readings, which are the largest body of remote viewing data that exists in the world and had been carefully uh, archivally documented by a woman named Gladys Davis, who was his lifelong secretary. And I had learned from the Casey readings that all the senses report, taste, touch, smell, but that people don't do very well on analytical things, like trying to get a name or a number. So anyway, I started, I made this grid and, um, and I discovered people could do it. And in fact, lots of people could do it. It wasn't any special skill. Um, and I began to detect uh, fairly early on, and also with myself, that people who meditated did better than people who didn't meditate. And I wondered why that was. And I finally determined that the reason was that the key to opening to non-local consciousness was um, the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. So in trying to do this, I, my, my interest when I got started, I guess this is actually important. Most researchers in this area, and I didn't really know anybody other than myself, I just got started. I didn't really start in reference to anyone else. But... Um, most people who get into this from in, as scientists start from the premise, is this stuff real? And so the experiments are designed essentially to prove whether something is real or not, whether non-local consciousness is actually real, because, of course, materialists don't believe it. <clears throat> they believe that consciousness is only physiologically based, dead meat, no consciousness. <laughs> so... Um, I didn't begin that way because by the time I started doing experiments in 1968, 
I had spent five years reading, as I said, um, not only all of the parapsychological literature, and I do mean all of it, but um, all of this other stuff, the Casey readings, Rudolf Steiner, Gurdjieff, Uspensky, uh, Blavatsky, uh, Bailey, I mean, all the people that you know you think about. So I didn't have any question that, it, that it, whether it was real or not. I thought that was a waste of time trying to continue to prove that, although people are still doing it today. What I wanted to know was, how does it work? And can you do anything of practical utility about it? So my research has been very specifically oriented toward figuring out what works, how does it work, what can you do to make it work better, and what can you do with access to this kind of information from a practical point of view. And that's really um, guided and shaped my research from the beginning. I went from the, the grid in 68, and I, as I said, I started with 12 grid, and I got up to 144 grid, and I found out it didn't make any difference. It produced a bigger statistical effect if it was one out of 144 than if it was one out of 12. But in terms of the actual data that was produced, it didn't make any difference at all. And I got, my original idea was to, because black holes had just been discovered, my idea, original idea was to see if remote viewers, or what I call distant viewers, could, um, could locate black holes. And I had a friend who was an astronomer, and um, when I talked with him, explained what I wanted to do, he said, no, you'll never be able to do it, Stephen, because um, it takes years to get time on a telescope, and nobody's going to give up their time on a telescope, so you can try this crazy scheme. <laughs> and so I then began looking around in another area of science. I, I had come out of anthropology, and I began looking around, and I in archaeology at that time, this is the, again the late 60s, <clears throat> and into the early 70s, archaeology was going through a great crisis about where to look. The question was, you know, how do we develop better techniques for finding things? And as I considered that, I realized that it was perfect from a, uh, from a remote viewing point of view, because Everybody agreed that the thing, whatever it was, existed. And they also agreed that nobody knew where it was. Right, exactly. So it would therefore be a triple blind experiment. I don't know how familiar your listeners are, but a double blind experiment is where neither the viewer nor the uh, scientist who's doing the experiment know the answer to the question. A triple blind is nobody knows the answer. There's no way to get the answer. The answer only lies in the future. So in order to get this information, you have to somehow displace in time in order to obtain it, because it doesn't exist at the time of the question. And you can only test it in the future. So archaeology, from my point of view, was perfect. Because, again, as I say, everybody agreed that uh, for instance, um, uh, the Alexandria project, which was one of the large early experiments I did, uh, 
everybody agreed Cleopatra had a palace. Nobody knew where it was. Everybody agreed the lighthouse of Pharos was somewhere in Alexandria, Egypt, but they didn't know where it was. Everybody agreed Mark Anthony had a palace, but no, the Timonium, but nobody knew where it was. So from my point of view, that sort of thing was perfect. But the other question that, that I was really concerned with was one that was haunting uh, parapsychology at that time. <clears throat> Most researchers talked about parapsychology or talked about what I would call today non-local perception. They spoke of it as if it were a, had a, there was a sender and a receiver and a signal, as if it were an electromagnetic phenomena, like a radio wave. And indeed, Frederick Myers, who coined the term telepathy at the early part, uh, end, of the, uh, end of the 19th century, uh, 1878, I think, or 1887, can't remember which, Myers was friends with uh, many of the researchers who were doing the early electronics research, like Crookes, who discovered the uh, cathode ray tube. And so, and, and in the 1870s, 1873, the first telegraphic uh, long range, long, long distance uh, telegraphic setup was put together between Bombay and London. And so, a lot of the researchers were caught up in, in the idea of, of electronics and what they were learning. This is very early, you know, radio and electronics. And, and so the idea emerged about that telepathy was mind-to-mind -mind communication. <clears throat> so you think telepathy, telegraphy, telephony, all those words, the reason they all sound very similar is because they were all coined at about the same time. I mean, the th important thing to remember is that as a result of the Council of, of Trent, 1560, uh, 1545-1563, science, uh, consciousness was stripped away from science and made a religious phenomenon. And so nobody uh, did very much work Involving consciousness, a few people did, of course, but but um, most scientists were afraid to touch it uh, because if you got caught doing it, they'd kill you, they'd burn you alive, and that's what the Inquisition was about, in part. I mean, go all about way back to Galileo. So the Church basically had said anything that has to do with consciousness belongs to us, and you guys in science can have materiality. And that started out and became a taboo, and it wasn't until the 19th century that psychology, psychiatry, and parapsychology all emerged as, and anthropology really, as emerged as ways of considering consciousness in a scientific framework, medical framework. Anyway, so the literature of the day, the, 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 the two dominant themes of the literature in the 1960s, 50s, was the idea that, that this was some kind of a signal phenomena and that um, the design of experiments 
produced what came to be called the decline effect. That is, in most of these studies that were being done in the 20s, 30s, 40s, particularly things like dice guessing or Zinner card guessing or uh, those kinds of experiments, the most notable thing about them was that the people who did them got worse as time went on. And it was such a dominant theme that it came to be known as the decline effect. Basically, you started with somebody and they did very well, and the longer you did it, they got worse and worse. And so I, the question that I asked was, well, why did that happen? And the answer, as I looked into it and, and talked to people who actually had participated in experiments, again, I didn't really know any other researchers, was that um, it was boring. <laughs> and I got that. I could see that. So I wanted to design experiments that weren't boring, that quite the contrary, were very exciting. Also, um, uh, somewhere in, I guess, about about time I started experimenting, I came across an interview that Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, had given in 1931 in, a, in an uh, interview that he did with the Observer newspaper which in those days and today still was one of the most prestigious British newspapers. And Planck didn't give a lot of interviews. So, that, you know, whenever he did, it was always important. And basically the newspaper had sent a reporter <clears throat> to talk with him. And the guy said, you know, you and Einstein are the two most famous scientists in the world. You're the, you know, the theory of relativity with Einstein. You're the father of quantum mechanics. What have you learned? And the um, answer that Planck gave was not at all what the reporter or his editors thought he would say. He said, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. The materialist view is that consciousness arises from physiological processes in your neuroanatomy. And what Planck was saying was that's wrong. Consciousness is first, space-time is second. And so the more I thought about that, and then I discovered that in 1944, in uh, Pisa, Italy, he had given a talk to a group of physicists in which they basically said the same thing to him, what have you learned? And he got up and he said, you know, I've spent my whole life studying atoms and molecules, but I'm sorry to tell you they don't exist. <clears throat> what we're really dealing with is a phenomenon of consciousness. So that had a big effect on me. And as I began to look at the German physicists who comprise much of what we call modern physics, Planck, Pauli, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, Einstein, all of these people had come to believe that consciousness was the fundamental. Einstein called reality an optical delusion. So I... I realized that we had adopted their equations, but not their conclusions. 
And I wondered, why is it that all of these guys who started out as materialists, all these famous physicists who we look to as the great Olympians of, of physics, all of these guys, when they got through with their research, believed that consciousness was really the causal fundamental aspect. So that gave me a lot of encouragement. And I began to think about uh, what, what I, as I say, what I call distant viewing in those days. As I, I began to think of consciousness, not from the point of view of proving that it exists, but again, as I said, figuring out how it works. And so archaeology seemed to provide a perfect example. I also came across a Jung had written uh, uh, something in which he had said, numinosity, numina, were psychic entia. And I realized, as I read what Jung was saying about the collective unconscious, and I came to understand that he was heavily influenced, as were all of these physicists, by a, a, a polymath by the name of Adolf Bastian, who had written a book called The Psychic Unity of Mankind. So I got a copy of the book and read it. And Bastion had formulated an idea that he called the elementary party, uh, the elementary um, thoughts of humanity. Elementa Duncan, I, that's very bad German, but that's sort of what he called it. And I began, and I thought in terms again of what the Casey material was saying, and I realized what we were looking at was an information phenomena. To me, the great mystery question for which I don't have an answer and nobody else does either, at least I've never been able to find anybody that had an answer, is what is information? It's not, that's a very tricky question mm. because um, if the distant viewing or the remote viewing work or the near-death studies or the mediumship studies or um, basically any of these non-local consciousness phenomena, once you start from the premise that they're actually real and you think about how they work, you understand that what's going on is some sort of information process. And Jung's idea was that things that got a lot of attention lots of acts of intention and observation were easier to see because they were numinous, because of noumena, which I, I came to believe was his way of describing information. He didn't know what it was either, but he recognized that things which had been the focus of a lot of intention awareness, particularly if there were heightened emotions involved, were easier to, to contact, make connection with, than um, the things that weren't. And in fact, one of my very earliest experiments was to look at the difference between targets which had been the focus of intentioned awareness and targets that hadn't. And, and I used, for instance, Chartres Cathedral and where, a warehouse that was the same size, that's the same square footage. So physically, um, from a remote viewing task, it would seem that that if size were the issue, that, that it ought to be as easy to see the cathedral as the warehouse. But that didn't turn out to be true. It was much easier to see the warehouse than for, uh, excuse me, it was much easier to see Chartres Cathedral for the remote viewers than it was the warehouse. What was the difference? And the difference was 
that Chartres Cathedral had been the to had been the focus of intentioned awareness with heightened emotion for hundreds of years. I mean, it was one of the great cathedrals of France, and uh, people had, from the very day it was conceived of, and they began to build it, and that took a couple of hundred years. So. As they were building it, it was the target of a huge amount of attention in this town. <clears throat> and in the, whereas warehouses are deliberately made to be as anonymous as possible because they don't want anybody to pay attention to them or complain about them. So size didn't matter. The construction material didn't matter. Um, the location didn't matter. What was the difference? And the difference was the cathedral had much more attention in a very focused kind of way than a warehouse. Nobody pays attention to warehouses. And then I did a series of experiments in which I, as once I began to think about things in that way, I did a series of experiments in which I used uh, nuclear-powered carriers and diesel-powered carriers to see if it was easier to see a nuclear-powered carrier than a diesel-powered carrier. They look the same unless you were very sophisticated. And when I got people to try that, what happened was I began to see, in, when I looked at the descriptive sessions that they gave, that they would describe, they would say things like, this has a little star inside of it, or there's something terribly hot inside of this thing, or it's like they have a little sun in a bottle was another one of the kind of descriptions. And I realized that what they were seeing was the nuclear reaction. And that got me uh, to look at the second thing that I really paid attention to, and that was entropic process. Entropic process, of course, we all know entropy of movement toward disorder. We think of it in physical terms, but I began to think of it in informational terms. And I realized, why do we see ghosts, for instance? And the answer, I think, is that ghosts are a sign of, 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 of powerful entropy. People die. There is a transition in the information state. And sure enough, when I began to look at things like the, the carriers that had nuclear power and the carriers that had diesel power, I could see very clearly, that's physical entropy, but I could see very clearly that it was easier for people to see the nuclear carriers than it was the the diesel carriers. And the difference was the propulsion system, because nuclear energy involves the breakup of nuclear structures. Uh, everybody's familiar with diesel engines. They're in trucks. I mean, they're, they're bigger in ships, but that they don't stand out in the way that a, that a nuclear reactor would. And I tried this with all kinds of things. <clears throat> I looked at why do certain places have more ghosts than other places? What is it that's going on there? And I came to believe that what was happening was people were became resonant because they had intentioned, focused awareness about this. Oh, you go to this house, there's a ghost. And so they tended to see these things. These are looking at informational structures. And it became clear also to me that time didn't matter and space didn't matter. They, are, they were informational enrichers, but they were not 
they were not the limitations that we think of them in 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 uh, space time. It was just as easy to describe a target that was in the next room as it was a target that was on the other side of the planet. In my grid experiments, I had gotten, you know, I, I made these mimeographed forms of the grid and I would send them by post. This is long before email, uh, before the internet. I would send them out by mail and, and say, I'm going to bury this thing on Saturday, such and such a date. So when you get this at your convenience, then I want you to try to guess where this target is. And, you know, I would send them as far away as I could. I sent some to France, for instance. And people in France were just as good at it as people who were in Virginia Beach. So distance didn't make any difference. And time didn't make any difference. It, 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 I, I began, once I got interested in archaeology, and I got people to look at um, archaeological sites, I realized that they could get information about those sites, even though they were thousands of years old. So time doesn't matter in the same way. It's an enricher informationally, but doesn't not a limiter. Space, same thing. All the, the, all the senses report, just as I had seen in the Casey material, people can give me answers about what things. It started because I buried, my wife had one of those, you don't see them so much anymore, but my wife had a little um, uh, perfume bottle that had a, a little squeeze bulb on the end and you squeezed it and the perfume would come out of the bottle. Yep. And I put it in a mason jar and buried it. And I got back a drawing of, of what it was, and the person who did it said, this also has this flowery smell. There's something very flowery about the a smell of this thing. And in fact, it was a bottle of Madame Rocus. I don't know if they make this perfume anymore, but they did then. Anyway, it was a bottle of Madame Rocus perfume, and it had a flowery smell. So all the senses report. Or people would say, would give me things and say, Oh, well, you know, if you were to taste this, it has a very sour taste, and it would be a it would be a, a bottle of lemon um, lemon candies. So, I, the more I tested this, I realized a all the senses uh, uh, reported time and space didn't make any difference, and I uh, and the other question was, is this electromagnetic? And so by the early 70s, or by the late, by 69, uh, I had, my wife got pregnant and I needed to make more money. And I went up and became uh, the editor of a magazine called Sea Power. And out of that, I got asked to become the special assistant to the chief of naval operations, a man named Elmo Zumwalt. And while I was in the government uh, working as the special assistant, a friend of mine was the head of the CIA, and he began to send me some papers. Everybody knew about my interest in consciousness, because I talked about it all the time, <clears throat> even though most of these people didn't believe it or didn't, th you know, didn't know what to make of it or didn't care or whatever, but they knew that I was interested. And so he began to send me the papers that were declassified, or no, they were classified, that, that somehow the CIA got hold of. I don't know how they got hold of them of a man named Leonid Vasiliev. 
And Vasiliev was a researcher <clears throat> in the Soviet Union in, in Leningrad, then St. Petersburg now. And he was asked by the Soviet Central Committee to look at this uh, consciousness phenomena and ask, was it electromagnetic? And so he was a very good researcher. He was a physiologist. And he began doing experiments where he would put people down in caves or in mine shafts, or, and he would build Faraday cages down in the caves or the mine shaft. Faraday cages block electromagnetic radiation. And he put them way deep in the earth. And it didn't make any difference. He would ask them to do non-local perception tasks. And they were just as good as when they did it on the surface. Didn't make any difference. So he finally, he very slowly eliminated all the parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. But ELF, extreme low frequency, 3 to 300 hertz. And he said the only way you could do this, you'd have to put somebody in a submarine because... Seawater is the only thing that really shields from ELF. And he went to Admiral Gorshkov, who was then the father of the Soviet nuclear Navy, uh, Blue Water Navy, that is, world ocean traveling ships, warships. And he asked Gorshkov if he could put somebody in a submarine, and but it never happened. So I got these papers that were given to me, these translations of these Russian papers, that the CIA somehow had gotten hold of. <clears throat> and I, uh, as I read them, I thought, well, maybe I could do this experiment because he had never been able to do it. So one afternoon, one day, I was flying up to Groton, Connecticut with the Secretary of the Navy, a man named John Warner, later became Senator from Virginia. And on the plane was Hyman Rickover, the father of America's nuclear navy. And uh, and particularly nuclear submarines, he'd started out in diesel submarines. And I asked him if he if I could put somebody if I could go aboard one of the nuclear boomers, the deep ocean uh, submarines that have missiles. You know, most people don't know it, but we have uh, nuclear powered submarines that are very deeply submerged that are cruising around the world ocean all the time, armed with nuclear missiles. It's part of what was called the triad defense, the, the bombers, the missiles on the ground, and then the missiles on these submarines. That's a key part of America's defense strategy. And I, so I asked him if I could go aboard one of the boomers when she was doing her sea trials and get some of the sailors to participate in these experiments to, <clears throat> to test this idea because ELF would be shielded. And I was helped in this by the fact that the Navy had also gotten interested in ELF because they had a problem with how to, to, how to um, communicate with the boomers. They didn't want them to come up to the surface where they would be picked up by Soviet satellites. They didn't even want them to come up and stay submerged but come up close because the heat from the nuclear reactors that powered the submarines would allow the Soviet sa uh, satellites to be able to pick up the heat bloom coming off of the nuclear reactor, and they would be able to tell where the submarines were. So they wanted to keep them as deeply submerged as possible. And in uh, about about 69, I guess, when I, uh, 70, when I just when I was starting, <clears throat> the um, 
the government had started what came to be known as uh, Project Sanguine, that later became Project Elf. But anyway, they studied, they wanted to know exactly how deep uh, a submarine could stay and still be able to communicate. So they, they had to know how deeply would ELF communications penetrate. And the other thing they discovered, uh, wanted to know and discovered, was what was the bit rate of transmission? And this, this, this is a little esoteric, but the idea is that <clears throat> how much information can you get across? Because of the waveform of ELF, extreme low frequency electromagnetic radiation, because of the waveform, you can't get, they discovered, you can't get very much information out. In fact, if you saw a movie called The Quest for Red October, there's a scene where they get, a, 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 they get the submarine is submerged and they get a message and all it's just a little string of numbers like one, two, three, four. And they go to a book and they open the book up and they look and say one, two, three, four means and there's a command of what to do because you couldn't get enough information across to really communicate with ELF in that, in that way. And so all you could get across was a little tiny little bit of information, like a little string of numbers. Well, I knew from the remote viewing work, because there were other people who, uh, people who were doing perceptual psychology research, and they had worked out that just to transmit a, a, a simple geometric form takes about 60 bits of information like a square or a cube. That takes about 60 bits of information to get it across. <clears throat> Only with ELF, you can't transmit 60 bits of information in that little bit of time. So there were two important parts to this. One was, could electromagnetic radiation penetrate into the sea at, at depth? And they had worked out exactly how deep you had to go. The Navy had spent $125 million trying to figure out how deep you had to go. And so I knew how deep we had to go. And they had worked out this bit rate. So my idea of doing this experiment when I went to Rickover was to put um, get some submariners to volunteer and to get them to describe where people were hiding um, on shore. Wow. And, and so that they couldn't possibly know. They were completely isolated. And could they describe where someone was hiding at a particular time? Anyway, I, I asked Rick over if, if I could do that. And in fact, I drove him home because we didn't live very far apart. And he said, well, let me think about it. It's an interesting experiment. And, but he called me a wee, about a week later, maybe 10 days later, and he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, it's an interesting experiment, but I'm not going to do it. Um, first of all, um, there was at that time a Wisconsin senator who was giving out what he called the Golden Fleece Award for misuse of government funds. He said that would attract attention. But he said more than anything, this experiment is so sort of strange that not only would Proxmire, William Proxmire was the name of the senator, not only would I get the Golden Fleece, but I'd get a lot of media attention and uh, that would be focused on the boomers. And we don't want that. We, we, we just prefer people forgot about them. Right. And um, so I'm not going to do it. 
And so it looked like it was never going to happen because, you know, you can't, it's hard to get a submarine. Anyway, I, so I, I was in government through Watergate and Watergate and what followed really upset me. I knew a number of the people that were involved who were later arrested and, and indicted. And, and I came home from my wife to my, and said to my wife when I got home after one particular event, we got to leave. I got to get out of the government. I, I don't, I can't tell the good guys from the bad guys anymore. And I can't work in those circumstances. I just, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. I mean, compared to what's going on today, of course, it's nothing, but um, <laughs> I, I just said, I, I, I can't do this. I wasn't really interested in power or that. That's not what I cared about. So even though I was being recruited to go over to the white house and work at the white house, I didn't want to do it. So I left the government and I decided because I had decided on archaeology as the area I was going to focus in since it offered these ideal circumstances that I would I would begin because I'm just a methodical kind of person like that that I would write a book about all of the previous uses of remote viewing in archaeology. And I did. It was a book called The Secret Vaults of Time. So you can get it off Amazon, it's still there. And it was all of the research that had been done up to the time I began to do experiments. And I got offered a fellowship by, from the Philosophical Research Society out in Los Angeles. I was in Tucson, Arizona at that point. And I went out and I stayed with, with a friend of mine, a man named Don Keach, who had found the hydrogen bomb that the, that was lost by the government uh, off Palermo uh, uh, in the water. And um, he was also very good friends with another man that I knew and quite well, Don Walsh, who uh, had made the deepest dive in history uh, in the Mariana Trench and the Challenger Deep. So these both Don Keach and Don Walsh had retired from the Navy and had taken up, taken over the Institute for Marine and Coastal Studies of the University of Southern California. And um, so I was staying with Don Keach to do this inter to be interviewed about this fellowship. And he said to me, you know, that crazy experiment you want to do with a submarine? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm never able to do it. And he said, well, we've got a submarine that's coming down to do its sea trials, and they've asked us if they can base at our facility on Catalina Island, which is off the coast of California. And we'll pay for three days of the operation of the submarine if you want to do that experiment, because we'd like to know how it comes out. We think it's crazy. I don't think it'll work. But, you know, it's worth trying. And so we're prepared to give you three days of the submarine. And that became a project called Project Deep Quest, which you can look at. You can go up to YouTube and do a Google on Deep Quest. You can actually see it. I got Leonard Nimoy to be the I filmed it because I wanted to make it very clear to everybody that there were no secrets. Everything was completely known. So I wanted it to be witnessed by lots of people. I didn't want it to occur, you know, hidden away in a laboratory. It was all done out in the open, and I had it, I decided to film it all, which I did. And then, as I said, I got Leonard Nimoy to do the narration. 
I thought Dr. Spock was right, just the right person. <laughs> Anyhow, so the question, the, the deep quest experiment was, can you locate a previously unknown wreck on the seafloor? Can you describe what I'm going to find if I go down in the submarine to find it? That's could basically the question is, can consciousness penetrate to the seafloor through through uh, hundreds of feet of seawater? And then the second part was, if I put somebody in a submarine and I asked them to, my original idea, could you find somebody, describe where somebody was located? It's what's known as an outbound experiment now. Could you do that? And I, my originally, I was going to use two remote viewers, George McMullen and Alan Vaughn, who had who later worked with me for many years. But at the last minute, Alan got the flu, and George had a co-worker whose wife had a premature baby, and he had taken leave time to be with his wife, and he couldn't come down. And so the same week that I learned that, I met Ingo Swan for the first time. And he was then working with Hal Putoff and Russ Targ and Ed May up in uh, Palo Alto at the SRI program. And so I asked Ingo, who I met and who was a very good remote viewer, obviously, and if he would be one of the remote, remote viewers and if he could suggest a second one. And he said, well, you ought to get Hella Hammond to do it. And uh, she was a, another one of the remote viewers. She'd been a friend of Russ Targ's all his life. And so I said, well, okay, instead of Alan and George, I'll have Hella and Ingo. And I thought about it and I thought, well, it wouldn't it, since they've already done a lot of research with Hal and Russ and Ed, I'll, I'll ask Hal and, and Russ if they'll be the outbound people. They'll be the they'll hide away somewhere, and they're in Palo Alto, and we're down in Los Angeles. So uh, and get Ed to do the interview. So I uh, worked all that out, and the, that was the question: Could the people who were submerged in the submarine could they reach out and describe where someone was hidden? So you're reaching into the seawater to find the shipwreck, and you're reaching out of the seawater uh, to find the outbound person. And in both instances, you would get an enormous amount of information, far more than you could than the bit rate of ELF transmission would accommodate. And therefore, I could answer the question: Is non-local consciousness an electromagnetic phenomena? So we did we did the deep quest experiment and it worked. Everything worked, and um, we found the ship. Uh, the, the the viewers described very specific, quite unusual details of things we would find when we went there. They described how the ship, why the ship was there, why it had sunk, uh, what had caused it to sink, how old it was. All of that checked out. All of it turned out to be correct. And when I put, when they, the viewers went aboard the submarine and tried to describe where the people were hiding, where Russ and Hal were hiding, they were able to do that. And so that answered the question. Um, whatever is going on with non-local consciousness, it's not electromagnetic. 
So it's not about signers and senders and receivers. A much better analogy or a, a sort of metaphor for it is the Internet. I mean, if you think about it, you do a Google on something, what do you do? You put in a search term. You create an intention contract. And the, the Google search engine goes through all of the information that's on the Internet, all those billions of, of individual apparati that are aboard the, the uh, uh, that are linked into the Internet, and it finds whatever you're looking for. And in the same way you ask a remote viewer, you give them a search term, um, please describe where April is uh, at this time, right? Mm -hmm. And so they describe that, they describe you, they can describe smells, they, maybe you have uh, flowers in the room and they can smell the flower, all those sort of things. And so that, get, that answered the question about, could it be electromagnetic? And it also showed me that the, archae my, the archeological idea that I had which I had developed by, by doing the research for the book, The Secret Vaults of Time, that that would all work. And I, about a year later, maybe, no, maybe two years later, two historians, I did a number of other projects, but the next really big one was, I mean, we did the Talking Idol of Ixchul on Cozumel Island, for instance. But in 1978, I was approached by two historians, two women historians, uh, Kay Croissant and Kathy Dees, who asked me, could you locate the tomb of Alexander the Great? Could you locate Cleopatra's palace? Could you locate uh, Mark Anthony's palace? Could you locate the, the lighthouse of Pharos? And I said, well, you know, I don't know, we can try. Um, you know, can you help get something like that funded? And they said they could. And, and so that became the Alexandria Project. And that became a book called the Alexandria Project that you can get off of the Internet. And that it was I asked 11 people to describe in detail where all these things were located, mark them on a chart. Because remote viewing is not a search technology. It's a find technology. I mean, you're not searching. The stuff's either, you go to where they tell you to go and it's either there or it's not there. So there's not a lot of searching. I mean, to find Cleopatra's palace took me about 10 minutes. And mostly the 10 minutes was I just had to swim around under the water because it's under the water. So anyway, we went to, I, I did all that, got all that information. And then because I had developed a technique that's now known as the Mobius Consensus Protocol, where you use multiple viewers. And the point of the drill is not to prove whether it exists, although you do that in the process, but that's not how it's designed. The idea is to develop a set of hypotheses that guide the field work. You know, you go to this particular location, you dig down three feet or whatever, and, and uh, this is what you're going to find. And as I said, if, if you, again, you can go to YouTube and go up and search on my name and search on the Alexandria Project, and you can actually watch, for instance, George McMullen locate out of a huge desert 
locate a single building down to 28 inches and describe exactly what will be found there. And Hella Hammett also adding to that. So I took, I took Hella Hammett and I took George McMullen over to uh, Egypt with me and a film crew, because again, I film everything. And uh, uh, five universities got involved, Oxford University, University of Warsaw, University of Alexandria, MIT. And I decided, based on what I'd learned out of DeepQuest, that I would run a parallel search operation using electronic remote sensing. And so in the case of the, uh, in that case, uh, the, the issue was, for instance, since the, re the remote viewers said that the, the lighthouse, the Anthony's palace, the Timonium and Cleopatra's palace, that they were all underwater. So the question was, I would run a side scan sonar search. And so I thought, well, who would be the best person in the world to do that? Because I wanted to deal only with people who are of such unimpeachable stature that there was just no question. So I, I, I contacted Harold Edgerton, who was the chairman of the Department of Radio Physics at MIT, and who had invented side-scan sonar, and asked him if he would come over and do the side-scan sonar work, and he agreed. So I had him doing a search. Could he find the same thing that the remote viewers had located? He could not. And then... Uh, because skeptics at the University of Alexandria, before they would give me permission to do all of this stuff, they wanted me to prove to them that I could do it. And they asked me to locate a single building in a buried city about 40 kilometers outside of Alexandria at a place called Maria. And so I had George and Hella locate that building, and you can actually watch them do it. And everything that uh, Hella and George said turned out to be true. And so I got permission and I got the Egyptian Navy to participate and uh, their diving, their commando divers to be my divers. And anyway, so we did this and we located all those things. And because of the way that we do the analysis, I, you know, when I do the interviews, I ask people, first of all, to locate the site on the map. Then I ask people uh, to describe for me what is there, if I go there in detail, how it got there, why it's there. And I, and I um, uh, break what they say down into concepts. So if I said the red-haired woman sitting at the microphone, that's only one sentence. But if you think about it, it's red-haired woman microphone sitting. So that's five concepts. And I would have, I would do this, and then I would have independent experts evaluate the accuracy of of each concept. So every concept would get a correct, partially correct, but operational, incorrect, uh, incorrect can't be evaluated. Um, by partially correct, but, but um, uh, operational, uh, suppose that, that instead I'd said, 
the woman with uh, light brown hair. So I'd get the hair part wrong, but sitting in the microphone and the rest of it, that would all be correct. So it would be operational if you see what I, the distinction I'm making. Sure. Anyway, what I discovered was, and I this is over many experiments, I discovered that about between 75 to 85 percent of the material that could be evaluated would be evaluated to be correct or partially correct but operational. About 12% would be wrong, and the rest would simply be not evaluatable. For instance, if you if you said um, when Cleopatra had the asp biter, uh, she was thinking of her mother. Well, you're never going to know that because unless she made a, a left a record that somebody discovered, there's no way to know. So can't evaluate doesn't mean wrong. It just means you, you can't evaluate. But between 75 to 85% of the material, and, and in a typical experiment like this, a study like the Alexandria Project, we're talking about thousands of concepts. I mean, we're not, it's not five or 10 concepts. It's not most of these experiments that get done because they were done by other people. And most of them are these laboratory experiments where I'm going to show you a target in an hour. Please describe it for me. So it's it's a very limited kind of thing. And I've done, you know, I've tested 23,000 people. So, you know, I've done thousands of these experiments. But what I was looking for, again, was what what how did it work, which means that you had to get very sophisticated information, and what could you do with it that was of practical utility? And so uh, archaeology, and then we did criminology and, and some other things. I would not do classified research because I felt that anything we knew about consciousness ought to be made immediately available to everybody in the world that was interested. So I turned down rather substantial funding several times um, because I, they wanted to classify it, and I wouldn't do that. But anyway, I've just been doing this now for, I don't know, almost 50 years. And um, what it has taught me is that Plunk was right. Consciousness is fundamental and causal. You can't get behind consciousness. And by manipulating how consciousness is focused, Again, the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. Meditators do better than non-meditators. That you can get any kind of information. And I think that's part of what scares people. Right. The idea that, that um, you can find out anything, literally. Um, and uh, if you do it correctly, you can become pretty sure that it's correct because all of these archaeological projects that I did cost a lot of money. So, you know, people had to have confidence that it would actually work before they were going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to locate things. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it does. So anyway, I, I, then I, later I wrote a book called uh, Opening to the Infinite, which is basically everything that science knows about remote viewing and how to do it, tells you exactly how to do it. 
I have a workshop that's at a glide wing has a workshop that I did about opening to the infinite. So I have tried to make all this material that I, all this research completely available to people. You can go to academia.edu or ResearchGate and get my papers. There are all these archaeology papers and all the other papers, the healing papers, which was the other. My work has been focused mostly on uh, non-local perception, non-local perturbation, particularly healing, therapeutic intention, creativity, and meditation. And uh, so I've just made it all available because I think this is very important. I mean, my personal feeling is that we're going through a paradigm change and that we need to get through it because the only way we're going to be able to deal with climate change, which I consider a civilization-threatening uh, development, is by recognizing that all consciousness is interdependent and interconnected and that the Abrahamic idea that we have dominion over the earth and that humans are somehow a different order of being from everything else is just simply wrong. You know, it's middle Bronze Age thinking. And that in fact, as I say, all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. And if you're going to prepare for climate change, you have to understand that what we are doing in the world is having a powerful effect on this matrix of consciousness, this matrix of life. It's changing the way the, the, uh, 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 the acidity of the oceans, it's raising the temperature, it's melting the ice, it's, it's going to transform. I mean, 20 years from now, we're going to be in a world that we don't even recognize, I think. And by the end of the century, um, I'm not quite sure what civilization is going to look like. Or, in fact, if there's going to be civilization. Mm. Because we are in very desperate trouble. Anyway, so my research has been focused on consciousness and, and the nature of consciousness and how to work with it so that you can use and do practical applications. Well, Stefan, this has been just an amazing and fascinating uh, discussion, and you made my job extremely easy today because I didn't even have to ask a question. <laughs> you you covered it all, and you know, as, as you're talking about all of the years of research and what you've been able to prove, and you know, the data that you collected, it almost seems silly to me that people are even questioning remote viewing. <laughs> you know, well, are, are still trying to be out. You know, trying to prove. Yeah. Well, you know, it's. It, it, a paradigm, paradigms are cultural, not scientific. That's what people, including scientists, don't recognize. Paradigms, the, the term was coined by um, Thomas Kuhn, who was at the Princeton Center for Advanced Studies and other places, but who was really the leading historian and philosopher of science of the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution, and, and, and in it, he describes this idea of the paradigm, which is a kind of collective belief that people hold. And what most people, including most scientists, don't recognize is that it's cultural. It's not scientific. And we are now going through a paradigm change. More and more, you see in the, in the academic literature, people writing about their encounters with consciousness and recognizing that consciousness is not physiologically based. 
I mean, as I said, the near-death research, for instance, um, research in creativity. I've published a lot of papers about creativity and how to create moments of genius. All of that sort of stuff. We're going through a big change. And and although people, it's not the dominant period, it's not the dominant worldview yet. I believe that it will become the dominant worldview because understanding consciousness is the key to understanding climate change. Mm. Well, you have made me incredibly excited to actually go on and watch some more of these videos that you have filmed from back then, and just getting a, you know, more educated on this myself. I, I find everything that you talked about to be very fascinating, and maybe maybe just one way to end a little bit because I know that you um, have been having people remote view the year 2050, and is it specifically to to understand what the ramifications are of this climate change, where where this planet is going, and possibly are are you you know, potentially offering anything in terms of solutions and trying to get, you know, the larger consciousness here and, and us as human beings on Earth to really make a dramatic change. Yes, I am. I have. Um, again, I, I, I got very interested in moving from um, laboratory or academic research settings to looking at how social transformation occurs. Because again, it's it's a cultural, it's a change in cultural perception. So um, I wrote a book called The Eight Laws of Change, which incorporates um, all of the information, all of the research that I have done about how to create social transformation. And I've even started writing novels now because I discovered in talking with a bunch of millennials, I discovered that that uh, a lot of young people don't read nonfiction books. I asked them what they read and they said novels and adult graphics, uh, graphic novels and watch um, uh, series on things like Netflix, you know, uh, things like Travelers and, and – um, Outlanders, that sort of thing, or um, playing video games. And so I decided to start writing novels. And so I've written Awakening, which is a novel of aliens and consciousness. And and the second one was The Vision, which is a novel of time and consciousness. I've just finished a third one, which will be published a little later in the spring, called The Amish Girl, which is a novel of death and consciousness. So what I've been trying to do is to get this information out in as many ways as I can to people, whether they know it's me or I, mean, I don't care about that, but to try to get this information out to create the critical mass because I have learned through research, uh, not only my research, but the research of many others, that when about 10% of any cohort changes, this is a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. When about 10% of a cohort changes its view, the whole cohort has to tack to that change. So I see it as a form of what I'm doing now as a form of social acupuncture. Yeah. Well, and 10%, and you know, as I hear that too, that, that feels uh, realistic and gives me hope. <laughs> if you were to say 90%. 
changes it. I feel a little defeated. 10%. All right. Yeah. And like you said, you're just embedding it into the consciousness in any way, shape or form that you can. uh, That's right. That's why I do interviews like this. Exactly. Well, I am so glad that we are able to be a part of this. And hopefully, you know, through our podcast and the people that we reach, we will also begin to add and come closer to that 10%. Well, I thank you very much for doing that. I, I, I really, uh, I, I hope people like this and, and um, that it stimulates them to think about these issues and that we can get to those 10%. We need to get 31.8 million people to think about consciousness as the fundamental. 31.8 million. All right. I like that number. Okay. <laughs> All right, Stefan. Well, thank you so much. And for our listeners to get more information, please head on over to his web website. It's stefanaschwartz.com. We'll also put that in the show notes. Check out the YouTube, check out the videos, um, and you know, do your part. Uh, you guys are listening. If you tuned into this, you somehow, some way are a part of that 10%. So begin to share this. Let's try just as a group to try to reach that 31.8 million and let's help Stefan, let's help our world and, um, and earth. So Stefan, thanks again. It really was a great honor. I, I enjoyed this hour with you. My pleasure. You have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day, four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today. (music) 